Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Elisa, do you ever think of moving to Toronto, perhaps, maybe uh, living the same kind of cosmopolitan, sophisticated life, but at a lower price point? And with nice people. Uh, yes, indeed. And we have one in our studio right now. Derek Holt is the vice president and head of capital market economics for Scotiabank. He's based in Toronto, but he joins us here because he was uh, participating uh, in a uh, panel that took place earlier this morning, a Canada's housing outlook from bubble to Buffett. Thank you very much for being here. It's Derek. a pleasure. Thank you. Well, okay. So my setup was at one point, Toronto and Canada indeed was thought of as a less expensive alternative to perhaps other high-priced real estate in other North American cities. Not so anymore, correct? It depends on what currency you have to invest. And if you have U.S. dollars in this kind of a marketplace, internationally speaking, Toronto, Vancouver, they're still well down the list in terms of the world's most expensive cities. So I think it still provides some value. What, what about people in Canada, people that actually use the loonie on a regular basis? That's a bit of a different picture. That is a story of strained affordability in markets like Toronto and Vancouver, where we are pro- probably seeing the best of housing markets over the course of the, the cycle of the past 10 to 15 years or so. But it's, we're still encouraged by the outlook. We, we don't think we're going through a, a big pullback as opposed to a temporary hiccup. Well, yeah. And just uh, over the summer, prices in Toronto did decline uh, pretty significantly, although they're still ahead of where they were a year ago. And part of the issue is that people aren't leaving their homes. That also you said that that this market could offer value to outside investors who are coming in and squeezing out local residents. How much lower do you think uh, Toronto home prices could fall? Uh, the real test will be next spring, given how seasonal the housing market is. But I, I suspect that over the course of between now and then, we'll see a bottoming of a series of evidence unfold. And, and over the longer term, I'd expect price gains per year in and around the 5% range. So how are you so sanguine when you also expect the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates three more times from now uh, through the end of next year? Well, let me... Um, Clarify, though, I do expect a cooling housing market environment nationwide, in part because the cost of borrowing is going up and in part because the price gains and the affordability is relatively strained. It's just that uh, the interest rate reset risk on the mortgage book applied to the whole housing market is relatively modest in Canada because the five-year mortgage dominates about 70% of outstanding mortgages. And so the rate reset occurs uh, gradually over time in the context of income growth. And what are you seeing in terms of income growth? That's been a big topic here in the United States. What about in Canada? It's also been very mixed in terms of the disposable income. We've been growing by 3 to 4% nationwide year over year. Uh, average hourly wages, just as soft as in the United States. In fact, softer at the start of the year, but they're starting to accelerate. And in fact, into next year, I wouldn't be surprised to see 25 to 3% wage growth. So that would be good for the housing market. It would. Uh, also, along the, the, the same lines and of uh, population dynamics in a market like Toronto, for example, the, the country raised its immigration targets. Uh, you're seeing people return home to the province of Ontario and the city of Toronto from the resource-based parts of the country. Uh, those overall population dynamics are favorable, and they're not returning home to uh, misfortune. They're getting jobs in a booming job market in Canada. 
So I'm wondering how concerned you are about NAFTA negotiations and the sort of uh, increasing tensions with the United States with respect to trade. Do you think that this could have a uh, bad outcome and could potentially hurt the economy of Canada? Could it potentially? Yes. I'm less inclined to treat it as a macro event now than I was perhaps at the end of last year or early this year when there was much more loose talk about a border tax, which seems to be dead in the United States right now, or tearing up NAFTA and walking away. I I don't find that threat to be credible in the the current context, as opposed to uh, something that's more sector specific and where we we, uh, renegotiate the individual industry prospects going forward in the context of the uh, the dividing line, the, the the strongest thing that matters to Canada and Mexico is to retain those trade tribunals, the independent trade experts, and, and not to be subject to the vagaries of the U.S. court system. To me, that's, at the end of the day, what is going to keep Canada uh, at the bargaining table. Can you explain uh, how that would work, what you're talking about, with respect to who would oversee the actual trade deals versus the U.S. court system? Well, right now it's an independent panel of experts drawn from all three countries that judge the trade disputes on a sector-by-sector, case-by-case basis. And you want to keep it that way, in my opinion, outside of the political cycle in either of those three countries and outside of the the court systems in order to make sure that these are as well-informed, impartial judges as possible. If you don't have that, then the whole idea of a rules-based trading system that everybody has confidence in goes right out the window. And so I think that's the, the, the final straw for each of the countries. Maybe just to give people just a quick idea of the relationship, particularly when it comes to, let's say, the automotive industry, the relationship between the economy in the United States and the economy in Canada, they're linked no matter what you do at a trade table. You're very right. I mean, one third of GDP in Canada is export driven and almost three quarters of that goes to the United States. So there's still a very, very strong connection with the U.S. economy. In fact, if you were to correlate GDP growth between the two countries over time, there's a very, very strong correlation. So the, the two are hitched at the hip to a significant degree still. So going forward, do you think that things are still on track, though, and you don't you're not concerned that uh, it'll just sort of be uh, dissolved, the whole agreement? No, I, I, I don't find that to be credible. I think it would be a political anathema, even domestically within the United States, to go down that path because there are so many people, who's, uh, Republican senators and congressmen in general, whose fortunes rest upon the, the, the NAFTA prospects across the northern states. And so to walk away from that and to impose a border tax, I think, would be politically ruinous, even domestically. Derek Holt, thank you so much for joining us. Derek Holt, Vice President and Head of Capital Market Economics for Scotiabank, which is based in Toronto. But he is here today in the Bloomberg 1130 studio. Earlier today, the uh, chief executive of Equifax decided he had had enough. And uh, to help us understand what's going on with the company, we have Jenny Cernane. She is a Bloomberg financial reporter and is in our studio here to tell us more. I was looking at the stock. A stock is not reacting happily to, I mean, investors are still selling it. I mean, from the time that the Equifax hack was released, I'm looking at the shares, they're down about 30%. What can you tell us about who's leaving and what does this leave Equifax? So does I, so I think obviously investors are not happy about the, the breach at all. I mean, it, uh, when you're a data company to have your data stolen, um, 
that's no good. Um, I think, you know, today, though, the weakness is actually kind of interesting. Um, the CEO announces he's resigning. They've um, got this guy who's been there for seven years stepping in in the interim. Um, but I think investors really did actually like Rick Smith. You know, under him, uh, he took over in 2005. The stock has just been on a tear, if you exclude these last three weeks, obviously. Um, and he he actually is credited with building Equifax into the company that it is today. And so I think for a lot of investors, there's some worry. Like, will this next guy or woman, um, will this next person be able to uh, continue his legacy, uh, minus the breach, obviously? Well, Jenny, it was sort of interesting. SunTrust analysts came out today and said that the equity, uh, that, that uh, the Equifax departure of Richard Smith, the CEO, is incrementally negative. And they said this is because the board is going to uh, have to start a CEO transition during this incredibly delicate time. You know, does this sort of limit their options for a CEO and create uncertainty at a time where the company is trying to regain its reputation? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question. I mean, so it's a they've said that they're going to look internally and externally. Um, there's very few top execs that weren't um, actually implicated in this breach. And so the internal hires might be a little difficult, but you know, externally, I think there's, um, there's a lot there. I mean, first of all, if you're a turnaround CEO, you're very interested, but beyond that, you know, Equifax has just this massive amount of data and, and they're always looking for new sources of data and new ways to package it. Um, and, and obviously internationally there, there's a lot of room to grow. So um, this is definitely, an overhang on the stock. This this breach was a you know a terrible thing for U.S. consumers. But um, you know, in terms of finding a Richard Smith replacement, I, I'm not sure that uh, it will be all too difficult. Jenny Serene, thank you so much for joining us. Jenny Serene is a Bloomberg News reporter. We've been talking about the Aquifax CEO deciding to retire. Obviously, this company has been under tremendous duress after a massive hack that revealed a lot of information about, frankly, uh, almost half of all American residents. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host, Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. The Chinese Ministry of Finance said last week that it was a wrong decision for S&P to downgrade China's sovereign credit rating. Indeed, the Ministry of Finance said it was a pity for S&P to focus on China's fast credit growth uh, because it was also ignoring the country's distinctive financing structure. And here to tell us more is Brendan Ahern. He is the chief investment officer of Crane Shares. Brendan, thank you for being with us. I uh, wonder if you could speak to this issue that the Ministry of Finance raised about these distinctive financing structures and whether the S&P downgrade of Chinese sovereign debt was really warranted? Well, I think an element of the S&P downgrade was falling in the footsteps of Moody's downgrade earlier this year. I think, if anything, uh, you've seen a high emphasis on trying to constrain, potentially contract the credit growth in China. So I think the reaction by the market's been very muted, as well as many China watchers would say maybe S&P's a step or two behind the trend that we're seeing taking place. But, Brendan, we did see a, a pretty significant response in uh, property stocks after, as property stocks in Hong Kong, I should say, after a number of Chinese uh, municipalities uh, tightened 
the conditions on mortgages for, and, and frankly, on buying in general on mm-hmm. the property markets in their, in their regions. What do you think of this? Is this going to be just the, a beginning taste of more substantial tightening uh, to come? I think in general, I think this is part of a trend around the upcoming 19th Party Congress taking place October 18th in Beijing, uh, fairly significant turnover within political leadership. So there's a high degree of emphasis on getting in front of potential problem areas. Housing is one area where you're seeing prices continue to rise, and I think the policymakers are trying to tap the brakes on trying to con- control some of those uh, skyrocketing prices. Well, okay. So if those uh, prices are, in a sense, controlled either by credit or by uh, any kind of change in the way that uh, individuals are allowed to borrow money, what uh, do you say is uh, to the people that look at these results and uh, these companies and say, you know what? We don't believe the accounts, and we have to figure out a way to consolidate the, the lending industry in China so that we can get our hands around it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think housing has been um, as much a form of investment for a lot of local citizens, and so you have a multitude of housing purchases. Uh, that That's raised prices due to the contraction in supply and continued urbanization creates more and more demand on an annual basis. So I, I do think there's a um, emphasis on trying to address this inequality of a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford to buy houses in China. Um, so I, I think I think Pim and Lisa, it is it is trying to get in front of this issue of prices rising, trying to dampen some of that enthusiasm. You know, Brendan, I've been kind of surprised this year. I've got to be honest because <laughs> uh, Chinese bonds have done very well, even dollar-denominated debt, which they're trying to raise more of now. Uh, there's been plenty of appetite. Tight, and there seems to be this complacency that China will be able to navigate a soft landing and won't disrupt uh, markets throughout Asia, frankly. Uh, do you think that there is too much optimism currently baked into markets? Well, I think one of the real surprises for the year has been the appreciation of the RMB versus the dollar. I mean, that, that's reversed a little bit of late. Uh, but I think it just shows that there's a lot of potential misperceptions around China. And in terms of credit, I, I think that the policymakers do want to get in front of these issues in advance. And there, there, there's going to be bankruptcies. I, I don't think it's going to be wide scale. Uh, reform of state-owned enterprises. You're seeing the large become larger. The mega caps are getting even bigger through mergers and acquisitions. But the tail end of some of these companies is that they're, they well go away. Uh, so we shouldn't be shocked by potential a few more bankruptcies within China's bond market. The big issue is China's bond debt is all CNY. It's all renminbi denominated. And it's really when, when countries or companies issue foreign denominated debt that they tend to get into an issue. That's not what we're seeing in China. The other thing is, is that there's been uh, an incredible lack of concern expressed by markets about the potential effect on China's economy from the escalating tensions between North Korea and the U.S. And, uh, you know, even if this doesn't get violent, which uh, which mm-hmm. a lot of people fear that it could, this could have some substantial uh, effects on, on Chinese economy, no? Well, I, I think that you have the, the potential for a risk-off environment due to um, escalating tensions, and that's a worry for any investor in any capital market globally. Um, you, know, you know, having recently been in the region, I, I think um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a politician, so, um, you know, this is kind of my own personal. The, the take was this was a lot of posturing as you potentially enter into a negotiating a negotiation that ultimately the consequence of any sort of military action is uh, just so ruinous for for all sides that it's it's uh, by a lot of people locally it was considered unlikely. Um, so you know we're certainly optimistic that this is hopefully just that that posturing as you potentially see negotiations in maybe the weeks or months to come. Well, you know, uh, the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, uh, he was speaking earlier today uh, in Hong Kong after visiting with the top uh, economic officials in China. And uh, he said that he believes that the relationship uh, is going to be positive for the trip uh, planned by President Donald Trump later this year. Do you believe that to be so? I believe uh, uh, Mr. Ross's trip was to pave the way for President Trump's um, um, proposed meeting in November, setting the agenda, getting things in place for us, for both parties to be able to come away on a successful, successful trip for both presidents. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that, Pim. Okay, so in, and, just, and just quickly, uh, this idea that all right, if they're able to reach some kind of negotiated agreement between the uh, the Chinese and um, U.S. Uh, negotiators, w- what effect, if any, would that have on the high savings rate of the Chinese? Because uh, they, in a sense, owe the debt to themselves, not necessarily mm-hmm. there are no outside uh, uh, creditors. Yeah, I think one of the big policies within China has been trying to raise domestic consumption. That that addresses one this very very high savings rate. Your savings go into deposits, bank lend those deposits, that becomes debt. So if you can raise consumption, that actually alleviates some of the credit issue. Um, at the same time, raising domestic consumption helps also helps alleviate export dependencies. So there's a dual dual gain for Chinese policy policymakers to. Incentivize savers to spend a little bit more. Brendan Ahern, thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, uh, truly a pleasure. Brendan Ahern is Chief Investment Officer for Crane Shares uh, in New York. And I just want to mention that uh, the Washington Post just published an exclusive report saying that North Korean officials have been quietly trying to arrange talks with Republican linked analysts in Washington to try to understand President Trump and his confusing messages better. Let's turn our attention now to Carlos Capistran. He is the head of Canada and Mexico economics at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. He was a participant earlier today in our Canadian Fixed Income Conference, and he spoke on the panel, Canada's economy, is there life after oil? Well, Carlos, tell us, is there life after oil? Because uh, another participant that we spoke with uh, earlier, Derek Holt, he he mentioned that there were many people who were moving from the resource-rich areas of Canada, like oil oil, natural gas, mining, and so on. And they're moving back to Toronto, and that's been good for the Toronto real estate market. But then that means there's something going on in the energy markets that we need to pay attention to. What are you seeing? Yeah, well, thank you very much for for the invitation to be here. But, you know, there are a lot of things going on for the Canadian economy right now. 
is not only oil. I mean, energy, I mean, is less than 10% of the economy right now. So there are a lot of uh, other things going on, services, manufacturing, a lot of things. Uh, and I think also that there is life after all, especially now with the NAFTA uh, negotiations. I think there is a lot of room for an update to NAFTA, you know, that is beneficial for the three countries. The three countries together, Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, form the largest economy in the world. I do have to wonder, you know, how well the Canadian economy will be able to withstand the interest rate hikes that the Bank of Canada is expected to make. How many are you expecting and how much will this slow asset prices? So we are expecting three more hikes, but we're expecting those hikes to take place next year. So not this year. So this would be part of what we see as a gradual hiking cycle. Uh, I think this is not going to be a drag for the economy. I mean, there is a lot of monetary stimulus right now. Real rates are negative, and even with these three hikes, they could only bring the the real rate to zero. So, especially if the Fed is also hiking at the same time, this is not going to be um, a lot of tightening. So, I think the the Canadian economy can can withstand these these hikes. Uh, the Bank of Canada has a tricky job to do here because if they don't hike then, you know, there's a risk of some uh, excessive risk-taking behavior. If they hike too fast, then they, they, they can hurt the, the part of the economy that is uh, highly leveraged. So it's a tricky road that they need to, to follow, but uh, I'm sure they, they're going to be uh, doing a good job of, of, of getting the rates there. I wonder if you could speak to the issue of tax reform and its relationship to companies that are currently doing business in Mexico as well as in Canada. Would a lower U.S. corporate tax rate make, those companies more susceptible to produce and, and, and create operations in the United States? Yes, for sure. So this is a, an important risk for both for Canada and for Mexico. I mean, lower tax rates here um, in the U.S. Uh, di- these two countries have different room to deal with this. I see. I think that Canada has more room uh, to deal with this. They, they, can, they have some space to lower rates uh, there, uh, whereas in Mexico, they don't have room to lower rates. So it's probably something that could affect uh, Mexico a little bit more, but it's definitely a, a downside risk for both economies. You know, we were speaking earlier with Derek Holt, uh, head of capital market economics at Scotiabank, and he was saying that he doesn't expect uh, the ongoing NAFTA negotiations to end with something that could potentially substantially harm the Canadian economy, which is intricately connected to the U.S.'s. Do you agree? Yes. So the, the, our view in Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, is basically that there is room to update NAFTA. And when you see room in a negotiation for to get benefit for all the parts involved, that's usually where you where you get to. Of course, there are still risks that, you know, we, we take a turn. And there is even the risk that the U.S. or any other country withdraws from NAFTA. So the risk is still there. We believe it's a small risk. But is there uh, what I don't think we're going to get is uh, is the timing right? I mean, I think this this negotiation is going to take a little bit more time than what people is expecting. But I think that at the end of the road, we're going to see an update to NAFTA that is going to be good for the two countries. And you think that the economy will remain stable where it is and not upset those plans? Because if you get some kind of big economic problem that could affect the government's response to these kinds of negotiations. Yeah, exactly. But um, right now, the prospect for North America are good. I mean, we have the U.S. growing slightly above 2%. We have Mexico decelerating a little bit from 2%. And Canada, of course, is booming. It's growing at close to 4% right now. We expect that to decelerate, but to rates closer to 2%. So North America is uh, it's, it's, it's having good growth right now. 
I want to talk a little bit about Mexico, if that's okay, sure. uh, especially in light of the devastating earthquake near Mexico City. Uh, how will that natural disaster affect the economy in Mexico? Is that going to is that going to be on the radar at all? Well, uh, of course, it's been very hard what's been going on in in Mexico right now. Uh, when you look at the at the impact on the macroeconomy, uh, what you realize is that this is going to have a negative impact in the third quarter. So probably the third quarter is going to be uh, going to be growing slowly, slower than than expected before. But then uh, there is a lot of help uh, already going on, for, both for private sources, but also from the government. And the government is in a good position to to help. That they have a lot of funds that they can use precisely for this type of disaster. So actually, what we are expecting is uh, that this help. Uh, from the government actually brings more 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 growth in the following quarters. Will that also include any investment in Pemex into the national oil company, which seems to pay what the majority of the taxes for uh, for Mexico? Well, no. Right now, the country is in the middle of a fiscal consolidation, and that consolidation uh, uh, goes through lowering expenditure at Pemex. This is part of the energy reform. So Mexico is hoping to get more private investment into the energy sector and is reducing the, the role that Pemex is playing in that sector and also as a taxpayer. Uh, but having said that, again, there are some savings that the government of Mexico has been doing and that they can deploy precisely for this kind of uh, 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 of disasters like the, like the earthquake. You know, Carlos, I'm sure that you hear the rhetoric from President Trump about Mexico and build that wall. Uh, still is committed to building that wall, he says, although uh, there have been questions raised about that. This has clearly soured relations between the two countries. Do you think that there will be economic consequences from that? Well, there could be. Yeah, there could be. And for sure, the most important part is NAFTA and the NAFTA renegotiations and, and a, lot, uh, a lot hangs on that. Uh, but to be honest is when you look at the three countries, they produce things together now. And because they do that, people realize all the benefits of working together. I would love to get your final thoughts on what, from your perspective, uh, holds the best value as an investment within Canada right now. I think it's just uh, growth. I mean, just better growth. I mean, again, the Canadian economy is just growing 4% right now. We have it growing uh, above uh, potential in the following quarter. So I think betting on, on growth through equities or, or digital markets, I think it's it's a good bet. On the fixing, fixed income market, uh, on the contrary, we're expecting some depreciation of the Canadian dollar. Uh, and and th- th- that's what we're thinking right now there. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, much appreciated. Carlos Capistran is the head of Canada and Mexico Economics at Bank of America. Merrill Lynch, he was participating in the uh, Bloomberg Canada Fixed Income Summit that uh, took place earlier today here at Bloomberg World Headquarters. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.